What is up, everybody? It's Andrew Undum, real estate agent here in Baltimore with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. Thank you so much for checking out the podcast. Go ahead and subscribe. I have got a list of guests coming that are gonna really knock your socks off. If you're into real estate, sales, negotiation, marketing, leadership, wealth building, you're gonna wanna subscribe to this podcast. I can't wait to take you on the journey with me here with the Andrew Undum Podcast. Welcome back to the Andrew Undum Podcast. I have one of my favorite people back in the studio today, Mr. Alan Dalton, and he is a true real estate legend in every sense of the word. I have permission to go deep. We're going personal today to figure out a little bit of who is Alan Dalton, the man behind the the myth and the legend. But for those who don't know, when I say a legend in every sense of the word, I have to put some color around this, Alan. I know this makes you uncomfortable, but I'm doing it anyway. The National Association of Realtors, one of the biggest trade organizations on the planet, calls Alan one of the top 25 most influential leaders in real estate period ever. Riz Media inducted him into the Hall of Fame. He's consistently on the Swan Pole top 200 most influential real estate leaders year in, year out. He was the CEO of a small little company called Realtor.com. Uh, it had a great six year run there, turned the company around. He was the president and owner of a 60 office Better Homes and Gardens franchise that was wildly successful in the, the New Jersey corridor. Mike Ferry, another living legend, dedicated his book to Alan. Um, he's been the author of five books himself. I'm super proud to say one with me. And he's been the creator of the national marketing systems for five national brands, including Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. He was the CEO of Real Living, one of Warren Buffett's two real estate brands. And now he resides with us at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services as the senior VP of research and development. That's who he is. And we're going to learn a little bit more today, aren't we, Alan? Well, Andrew, it's great to be here with you. It's great to be a participant in the Andrew Undon podcast series, and you two are one of my favorite uh, people, but when you're using the word legend, you're using it too liberally because mm. I don't think anybody in real estate is really a legend when you look at the larger world. In fact, today we're happening to do this. We're happening to do this uh, podcast on Martin Luther King Day. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a legend, and when we speak of Martin Luther King, Andrew, and I think it's only appropriate that we pay homage to this deceased um, global leader. Uh, he was such a great orator. In fact, I, I think two of his greatest quotes of all time was one, I am a drum major for justice, peace, and righteousness. And another one was, if we're to have peace on earth, we must have loyalty to the ecumenical and not the sectional. So when you think of the times that we live in, where realtors are always being encouraged to determine what is your why. How about those um, transformative whys? It's just amazing, and it's a great to be here on his day. Well, you always give such good perspective, and um, yeah, he is a, a true leader and legend in every sense of the word, but in our world, you are too, and we're gonna find out a bit more uh, today. And one of my favorite MLK quotes just on the topic is, I believe it was, injustice anywhere, leads to injustice everywhere. That's, that's a great So you can't tolerate it. We can't tolerate it, and we won't tolerate it. And um, so, Alan, we're going to start off today. Now that everyone knows a little bit about your career, mm -hmm. it's the highest of highs. A little bit. That sounded like a eulogy. <laughs> well, you've, re you've, you've reached the apex 
of real estate, of the real estate brokerage world, like many times over. That's why you're a legend to me. Everyone else can make up their own mind. But uh, many of the people I know always say, hey, Alan Dalton's the smartest guy I know. Real estate legend. Like that's kind of like, you've been synonymous with that in some of the circles I've been traveling in uh, recently. So let's, t let's go back because you have this awesome story. We're going to get into the Boston Celtics. We're going to get into, because Alan was drafted um, by the NBA. But let's start here. Early life, you're from Boston. I'm not sure if anyone could tell from the accent, but you're from Boston. Take us through that. Siblings, parents, growing up. How, did, how do you come to be? Well, it's funny. Let's start with the accent because when I traveled throughout the industry, um, years ago, people would always immediately say, oh, you've got a Boston accent. But then I spent 20 years in New Jersey, and people would then think it was a New Jersey accent or a Northeast accent or the synthesis, a New York accent. But when I go back to Boston, no one ever says I have an accent. But when I'm in New Jersey, they say I have an accent. So I assume I still have predominantly a Boston accent. And it got me in trouble once because I was doing a, making a presentation in the great state of Mississippi. And I was talking to a few people and I mentioned that I played basketball. And somebody asked me, well, Alan, what position did you play? And I said, well, I was a god. And they thought I was making a deity reference that I was the almighty. I was, I meant to say a god. <laughs> But I, I was said, a god. no, I was a real estate god. <laughs> yeah. All right, so so I'm eager to get into some of these stories because in our travels, I've been um, fortunate enough to hear a lot of them before talks, after talks, hanging out, just kind of on the road, if you will. So I'm going to pull some out of you today because you're right. full of them. Well, uh, have at it. All right, so again, be careful I want, what you wish for. Right? I know. Alan said I wasn't going to be able to handle the truth. We're going to figure it out today. Well, I think just chronologically. You're one of, you have, you have five siblings, right? You're one of six? Yes. Well, take us back there. Before we get into your career, I just want to hear a little bit about coming up. And because I know it wasn't, uh, I don't think a lot was given to you. I mean, you got love from your parents, but yeah. you earned every penny you've ever made. Well, I had two amazing uh, parents. We had two amazing parents. Uh, my mother, I can say without hesitation, was the nicest, kindest person I've ever met because objectively in her entire life, she never said a negative word about another human being. In fact, my brothers and sisters used to try to tempt her because they'd say, hey, mommy, did you hear what someone so said about you? And the most she'd, she'd ever say is, well, kids, everybody's entitled to their same opinion. Whereas my father, who I love just as dearly, was e eternally sarcastic, okay, and cynical, and would be very quick, okay, to, to say things that uh, were not always respectful of all people. And so I think uh, from both of them, I have the extremes. Sometime I can, sometimes it seems as though I can be uh, extremely generous in my commentary about others, whereas at other, on other occasions, I can be very abrasive. And I think I, I owe it to my parents um, for that, that great range well, you definitely have great range there. And, you know, you grew up playing basketball. When did you find out you were so good at basketball? Because before real estate, basketball was your, the whole thing, right? As your life kind of revolved around basketball? You know, I, I played as a kid. I played hockey. I played football. I was all city pup Warner in football. Uh, the priest in my church, he was drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies, and he had a gold card that he could get into any baseball Stadium in America. He, he played with Dizzy Dean and the Dean uh, brothers. 
for those old timers who re recall those names. And um, and I remember one day at, at at church, he said, "We have a future professional baseball player." And the reason for that is because when we went to the altar boy outing up in Salem, New Hampshire, I was the youngest. My brother was three years older than me, but they had a contest that you had to throw a baseball from deep center field and whoever could get it closer to the catcher. And I threw a bullet right into the catcher's glove. I won the award and I was, it was one of the most memorable days of my life. I was brought up into the altar and the whole church gave me a big ovation and they gave me an award uh, from the from the city of Boston altar boy outing. So I, but, but although I love baseball, uh, football and hockey, when I discovered basketball, basketball suited my energy level because when i was a kid i was so hyperactive back then they didn't have medication for you when i was eight years of age the teachers used to have to come up and harness me uh, because i used to for example i would say pledge allegiance like this i pledge allegiance to the flag and they used to have to come to my seat and say alan easy relax take it easy take it but basketball was something that i could play almost like 24 hours a day so once I started getting into basketball, I never lived without a basketball. I played in many, many leagues. Like how old were you when you got introduced? I would say I was like uh, 10 or 11. And I just, from then on, I just dropped everything else. And I was addicted to basketball. I still am. I still play basically every day. This winter I haven't been because where I live, there's not any great gyms. But in the spring and summer I play, I try to play every night or early in the morning. I know because, you know, Alan is a young 73, right? Yes. And he kicked my ass in, in basketball one-on-one. -on -one, and we'll save that story for a little bit later. Now, this foreshadowing, there, you know, later on in your 50s, you were named as the best pickup basketball player in America with a crazy Atlantic article that we're going we're gonna to link to in the show notes. But you're talking about people clapping for you, at, you know, in, within the church setting with the altar boy throwing the you know, the straight rope from center field to the catcher's mitt. Were people just clapping for you your whole life now, Alan? Because I see what happens when you speak around the country. You sound like you had it pretty easy growing <laughs> no. up. No, clapping It must booing. be nice. No, in fact, one time I gave a speech. I've never been on the speaker circuit. I've never, I've turned down more speaking requests than I've ever given because I've never seen myself as a speaker. I'm a speaker. It's like saying I'm a breather. I'm a walker. I mean, we're all speakers. Um, but many years ago, I, I created the national marketing system for another global brand. And I introduced it in Boston, no less. And I was the keynote, and it was for the first time I talked about you should have a marketing system instead of a listing presentation, and it should be tied to the, to the brand. And at that time, I had never given a speech before. I had never known you've got to show enthusiasm and walk the stage. And so I just get up there in front of 3,000 people as if you and I were having a conversation. Because it was in Boston, I invited my parents. My mother was there. My dad was there. They sat with my little girls at the time, their grandchildren. And, and when I got through, people actually started booing. In fact, the whole audience started booing because the whole convention was called the Marketing Revolution. The chairman of the company, which was Meredith, Better Homes and Gardens, got up there and said, I don't know real estate, but I knew a winner, and you've got a winner with this marketing system. They had a fife and drum routine. They were all up there playing the revolution. They had all of the outside speakers, Lou Tice, Howard Brinton. They all had it in their, in their sessions. They had to talk about 
the marketing system. So there's big, big um, buildup. And then I get up there and just spoke conversationally. Well, I think we need a, a marketing system because you don't want to have the public think this a nameless phenomenon. And until something has a name, it doesn't exist. And it and, and you want to give a sense that you have something structured and prepared. So I spoke in that cadence. How long? How long was it? It was talk? for 90 minutes. It was 90 minutes of that cadence. And, and in fact, the, the training director for the brain came up to me immediately afterwards. And he said, that was horrible. Okay. But then one person, Gordy Gundaker, who was a major broker in St. Louis, he was the only one who came up to me. And that's a characteristic of great people. They're kind-hearted. He came up to me and he says, Alan, that's a game changer. That's going to change the industry. That's going to change our brand uh, forever. Then right after the convention, they had 64 rallies set up. And they were, and we hired eight speakers to do eight each, of which I was one. Um, David Knox, Howard Brenton, G. Dunstan, all of these people, um, they were hired to go around the country. Now, because I was the founder of this, I picked Hawaii and San Francisco was two of my eight. But then, but then the president of Better Homes and Gardens started receiving phone calls. If Alan Dalton's going to speak at our company, no one's going to show up. <laughs> now, typically, if somebody doesn't like a movie, they just don't go to the movie. You don't call the movie theater and say, by the way, we're not going to come to the movie if you're showing that movie. I had to suffer the indignity of having calls coming in to our president, canceling the rally. If our people have to hear Alan Dalton, we're not going to attend the rally. Alan, for his credit, God bless him, Alan Sabeg, he said, no, Alan's going to speak there. So I spoke at mine. They liked it a little bit. But then a year later, they brought me back into some companies where I could really, in a different format, and it became, then I had to do videos. And then the next year's convention, when I walked into the convention with my family, the closing night, there were 3,000 people at the banquet. All 3,000 people stood up and gave me a standing ovation. And I think it was a, it's a great example of how you've got to believe in yourself. You can't get down. Because I don't think many people in our industry have ever encountered a situation at their own company and their own brand getting a standing booing convention and everybody saying, please, you can't send him out to deliver my message. So everybody else was going to be delivering my concepts but I wasn't going to be able to. So that's a memorable thing. And I think that for your audience, that's a great example. There's an old saying, if you don't believe in yourself, that makes it unanimous. If you believe in yourself, nothing will ever stop you. And by the way, I've never been nervous giving a speech because I've always been excited about the content. It's never been about me. It's always been, it's not even about the audience. It's about the belief system, what I'm talking about. And if you take any subject at that level, you'll always be confident and you should always resonate because you're not worrying. What do people think? Will they like this? Will they like that? Uh, people, for example, that are doing Harry Krishna on corners, they're not worrying because they're at a missionary level. And I always try to be, I won't speak about anything unless I have a missionary zeal about what I'm talking about. Well, that's a heck of a story based on, I, all I said was, I think everyone's been cheering for you your whole life, but I didn't know you got booed off the stage by 3,000 people, but hey, you came back. Now, before we get into your business career, because we're going to go, we're going to get yeah. into the real estate stuff. So obviously you were a standout basketball high school player. Where'd you play in college? I played the small college, Suffolk University. I was a small college All-American there. 
and I was drafted a low draft choice by both the Boston Celtics, and at that time there was a team called the ABA, a league called the ABA. I was drafted by the Memphis Pros of the ABA, and so I tried out for both. I didn't make either that year. No one made the Celtics that was drafted, and then I played in Europe. And back then I played in Greece, but in order to play in Greece back then you were supposed to be a Greek American, and so shamelessly. They changed my name from Alan Dalton to Alexos Daltos, and they created a phony birth certificate. So I had to prepare my wife to always be introduced as uh, Mrs. Daltos, Mrs. Alexos Daltos. And so, and then when I came back from playing in Greece, a friend of mine, Michael Baskowskis, had been the captain. You could Google all this. He was captain of Yale University for two years. I grew up with him, and Michael said, Alan, you look more Lithuanian than Greek. Why don't you play in the Lithuanian games? So I played in the Lithuanian games under the name of Giannis Ambrosius, and I was the MVP of the Lithuanian games that were held in Toronto. But I guess I should be ashamed of this, okay? Uh, I, sh I should be ashamed of this because it's what's happening today. People are giving, f using phony names of backgrounds, but I was so addicted to basketball I played in Catholic leagues, Protestant leagues, Jewish leagues, okay? I played in different countries under, under their nationalities. I just couldn't get enough of basketball. This guy's like Tom Brady. He just won't go home. <laughs> like, he just keeps playing. I wish. He's like Tom I Brady. Wish. Yeah. You're out at the pickup at Fairfield and, and where you're playing now. This guy, you can't get him off the court. Like, he won't go home. He's always looking for another game. So you've been like that for a long time. I have been like that. All right. So obviously, prolific basketball player. And then where does, I know you started in insurance sales, just from yeah, some of your yeah. anecdotal talks I've heard. Tell us how you got into sales and then how that kind of, how you got into real estate. Because I believe, well, you know, take it from there. I mean, yeah. Well, I, I first got into um, insurance. I was in it for Prudential Insurance. And before that, Mutual of New York. And I was an agent. And then when I was about 25, I was a division manager for, for about 25 people. I did well, was able to buy a nice house for my family and so forth and so on. But I never enjoyed life insurance because it was always kind of negative. You were going into people's homes, talking about them dying. Right. Okay, no matter how you put it, no matter how obliquely you handled the subject, estate planning, this and that, you were there almost like the Grinch. Okay, and, um, and I was very caught up into it. I used to go to, into people's homes and I'd say to the, at that time, it was mostly the men that was buying it for the family. This was like 50 years ago. And I would say to the, um, to the husband, for example, hey, look, it, I'm not going to leave here tonight until we get you to get insured. You've got three kids upstairs. I'm sorry, I'm just not leaving. That's how emphatic I was. I wasn't smooth. I wasn't professional. But I, I made a lot of records in my agency because I was nonstop. Um, I was nonstop um, selling. But back then, insurance was also very crude. Right. And, because back then in our training, if somebody said, well, Alan, how many years do we pay for the premium? Our answer was, maybe only one. <laughs> Depends when you die. If right? somebody said, what do I need a policy for? If I die, my wife's just going to remarry anyway. In our textbook, we were taught to say this. What would a woman with a million-dollar policy, policy possibly want with another husband? Okay? And so we were taught to say, it's not, it's not uh, if you die, it's when you die. So it was all very hard-hitting. If you, if you said to a friend, hey, let's go to a ball game, they're afraid you're going to 
talk about life insurance. Right. You know, and then one time I used to call baby births, and I remember calling a home and the baby had died. And it was very devastating. Although on the good part, I once had to deliver a death claim to a woman in her eight, early 80s, and she had been married for 50 years, and this was the first week that she didn't have a husband. So I spent three days taking her places, shopping, and this, that. So there was nice thing because it's so important, but it was not, but I've always been upbeat and optimistic. And so I get out of insurance when I bought a home, and it was from Bob Locking in Medfield, Mass., and he brought me into his agency into real estate. But shortly thereafter, I went to a seminar about real estate, and there was a speaker from Atlanta. His name was Steve Brown from the Fortune Group. And I saw an ad in the newspaper that if you can put God first, your family second, and your career third, we'd like to hire you. But it was in the real estate section because it was a real estate consulting firm that was selling back then three-quarter inch industrial videotapes for trainings to the real estate industry. And so I interviewed with them and I got that position. And then for a year, I traveled all 50 states. In fact, for one time I had a broken foot and I had to drive with my other leg up in the, my leg up in the dashboard, okay, <laughs> uh, for like two months because I was on straight commission. And then I'd get to the brokerage and I used to have to lug in. I used to have to hop on one foot the TV, just to be able to display it. During that time, I got to know the people at Better Homes and Gardens, and they hired me to be their consultant. And then I met Joe Murphy. All right, wait a minute. Let me take yeah. this back for a minute. So you start selling training to mm -hmm. other brokerages around the country. You're going door-to-door, brokerage-to-brokerage, driving around. In all 50 around, states, and I'm driving. Showing videotapes. Sleeping in my car at night to save expenses. This is like textbook, like selling personal development, Earl Nightingale stuff. Exactly. Same kind of gig. Exactly. So you, okay, and what year was, how old were you when you were doing that? I was like 27. Okay, so now you're 27. So you did insurance from what, 22 to 27? Yes, five years of insurance. Five years of insurance. And about six months of real estate sales. Real estate sales. Then it was, how, how long did you do that? Brokerage to brokerage, driving around town. I did that for one year. Full year, and then for you met. one year, yeah. And then you met the Better Homes and Gardens people. But also, but because I was selling a program about professional selling techniques that people paid $22,000 for. It was high tough, ticket. High ticket, because back then, this was a new technology. So I had a lug in the TV. Again, I was hopping on a leg a lot. That's a big memory of mine. I was oh, yeah. sweating. And I think people thought Full it was like a, a sympathy close. Okay? And um, so I had that. And then the big books of the big three-quarter inch tape. And then we'd show the tapes, we'd show it to the training people. Then we had a management series. The management series was $12,500. The sales training was $10,000. And I remember back then saying to brokers, how much a year do you invest to get the phone to ring? I don't know, with the newspaper, I don't know, 50,000. How much have you been, in, how much have you invested in terms of how your people answer the phone? So we had all of the Things that was very compelling. Dude, great you've been doing this shit for a long time, Alan. Amen. You've been selling at the highest level for a long time. Now, I have to know that. And this. by the way, back then, I made more than national brand presidents. Uh, and, and the other four people that they hired to do it with me, they fired all of them because they didn't give value and they didn't care about people and they were like hit and run men. But I created tremendous relationships and there was an outpouring to the better. We've got to get this person into our brand. So they hired me then to work in the brand. So that's how you get to, now before we jump full into Better Homes and Gardens, that's a huge piece of the story. We're gonna get into that. Yeah. 
How much are you making on a commission back then when you saw $22,000 worth of consulting? It was, it was 20%. 20%. Yeah. So you were, you were doing well. Yes. Sending checks back home to Boston. Absolutely. All right. So you meet the Better Homes and Gardens people. Now, how does this introduce? Because, But then I went to Joe. Go ahead. Right. Because Alan's partner in the 60 office, what it came to be, a 60 <laughs> office Better Homes and Gardens, just really tycoon mammoth style operation in New Jersey was him and this guy, Joe Murphy. So how'd you meet Joe? Tell us how that relationship Well, here's what happened. Uh, when Better Homes and Gardens hired me, I was both selling the franchise and servicing it in the Northeast, actually more New England. We had another gentleman who was in New Jersey doing the same thing. For whatever reason, the people in Boston, I was not their cup of tea, no pun intended. And the person in New Jersey, he wasn't the cup of tea for Joe Murphy. Joe, Joe only had two offices. This other company had about 30 offices. And we were supposed to introduce a program that just came out from Better Homes and Gardens. And so I said, Joe, why don't you make your presentation in Boston they really like you because they were old-fashioned Boston Brahmins wearing the bow ties and right. tweed suits. And that's how he was. He was a prep school type of young guy. So they loved him. And Joe was an athlete himself, played college basketball, almost made the Olympics in track. Handsomest broker I've ever met in the, in the industry. Okay, that was before meeting you, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. Joe Murphy is that. He, and so what happened is that, um, so we arranged a switch. I made the presentation to Joe's company in New Jersey, even though I lived in Boston. Joe Hare, that was his name, great friend of mine, made the presentation at Honeyman in Boston. And a week later, both of us were hired by that other company. So I moved my family to New Jersey, and Joe moved his family to Boston. Joe stayed in Boston for 40 years until they recently sold their company. Uh, it, was, it was the Hammond Group. I moved to New Jersey, and then for 20 years, we built the company from two offices to 60, and then we sold it to Rilogy. And so that was, and so when I got to the company, because Joe and I had a great personal connection. Joe Murphy, you and Joe, Joe Murphy. Murphy in we had a great personal connection. Our families connected well, our wives connected well. And Joe said, Alan, I just want you to help me build my company. What position should we give you? I said, well, you know what? Why don't you call me marketing? Because he called me marketing. Before then, my entire mentality was I'm a salesperson. Right. But because if I have a title called marketing, I better create a marketing system. So I created the whole marketing system. This system, that system, the move-up system. Okay. I created all my systems to validate that I was in marketing. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. But so just so I know, Better Homes and Gardens hires you corporately to go kind of sell more franchises. Yeah. And you're out giving presentations. And when you're down in New Jersey, one of the owners of a franchise, Joe Murphy, says, I just want you working with me. Because yeah. he saw talent. That's probably why he was so good. So when you came on to Murphy Realty, Better Homes and Gardens, he sees yeah. you, he goes, I want yeah. this guy. Yeah. He had what? How many offices did he have? He had have? two. He had two offices. Yeah. And he was a home builder. Well, he was a, home, he was a major home builder. Major home builder. He had been in business he had real for like 15 years before yeah. I got there. Yeah. So he's a textbook home builder. He's yeah, like, yeah. why don't I pick up yeah. some commission money yeah. too? I, I have a yeah. brokerage. And then you, you go into marketing. Now there's these awesome clips. Hey, Brandon in the back, we're going to have to queue up some of these clips because I have all Alan's talks from 1987, which yeah, is the, yeah, yeah. Um, the home marketing system. Right. They're, they're freaking awesome today. Yeah, yeah. They're even better today than they are. Yeah, they see, were. what happened with that, Andrew, is when I was with Better Homes and Gardens, I said to the heads of the company then, I think we should have a marketing system, but because you get into people's egos and their fiefdoms, 
they kind of like chuckled at it. It took me to go to Joe and create it there. Then it took over. Everybody had it on national TV, on all the billboards. But see, I was frustrated that I couldn't get my ideas through the national company that way. I ended up going it from the from the brokerage level. But here's how Joe read me. Joe, Joe sensed my frustration, and here's what he did. He called the president of Better Homes and Gardens, and he said, Alan. Alan sad Yeah, Alan. He goes like this, Alan. Um, would it be okay, I know Alan works for you, but would it be okay if I paid him, now back then this would be like a million bucks, if I paid him $100,000 on the side just to consult with us? Now they had consultants, but here's Joe Murphy calling them. Now he wasn't going to do that, but he was just doing that. It's a move. Ironically, right? because he sensed my frustration. That I don't think they valued me, but Joe valued me so much. He not only valued me so much, he was a character. Okay? Hey, would it be okay if I hired your guy here? Oh, he'll still work for you, but I'd like to pay him $100,000, which is more than anybody was making in the company then. Could I? But he was a wealthy builder. Could I have your permission to pay him $100,000 just to do some side consulting on the weekends with us, right? Now, it was all a joke, but see, they almost choked over that, but that's how we connected. Right. That's how we connected for 20 years. We're on the same wavelength. That's so awesome. Now, we got to <laughs> spend some more time here because there's like a million stories right, right, right. With, uh, with Joe Murphy. <laughs> but you know what's funny? That for the first time I'm putting this together, you said, you know, you have some frustrations trying to do things at the national level. Sometimes you got to go down, do it at home, and then let it look cookie crumble. Well, that's exactly right. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm fighting a battle sometimes too with some of my own stuff. You know, it's like, hey, you know what? I should just stay in my lane. I'll, let me just grow where I am. And then hopefully if, you know, if you're, if, if you're really good, no one can ignore you. Yeah. Just keep being great. Um, okay, so, so a couple stories here. Now you end up, you and Joe Murphy have. An, By the way, I can't say the same now because I've never been more supported in my life than from Gino and, and especially now oh. Christy as our budnik. But back then, you know, I'm 30 years of age. I have all these ideas. Yeah, you, don't, you didn't guy? deserve it yet. Yeah, exactly. You, you got to earn you gotta, it. You you got to take your time. You got to earn it. Hey, right, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm waving the banner. Look, I've gotten more support than anyone. And I'm still here yeah. just trying to earn it. Exactly. I haven't earned anything yet. I'm just selling houses here. And hey, you're in the top four in the whole global network, so you've earned a lot. Yeah, well, and but, you were the highest rated speaker in the history of Summit, and you were the highest rated speaker out at Vince Lacey's explosion, because Vince told me it was like 99% of the people said that was the highlight listening to you. What? So remember what Golda Meir said, don't be so humble, you're not that great. <laughs> don't be humble. Hey, well, the reason I got high ratings is because I was using all your stuff. No, no, come on. Alan's given me permission to steal a lot of his content, and boy, I'm the best at stealing his stuff. Now, so here's the thing with Joe Murphy. Now, this ends up being this wild success, 60 offices. You changed the New Jersey skyline, and that's what I want to talk about yeah. a little bit because, you know, uh, this day and age, right now, everyone's infatuated with this guy, Ryan Serhant, and these people selling condos in New York City mm -hmm. and the right, social right, media. Right. And I tell a lot of um, my colleagues, I said, I'm not sure if you get it, but Alan was that like 20 years ago. Like they don't, sometimes they miss it just because they don't see you on social media all the time. And I'm trying to pour as much light on you as possible, not because, just because you deserve it. And all the ideas that people are stumbling upon today, I'm like, did you not see it? He, he said that 28 years ago. Or like when you historically called exactly what was going to happen with Zillow and these portals, but we'll get into that a little bit later. I want you to tell the story. You and Joe Murphy, yeah. 
are getting, you're competing against Weikert and some of these other giant companies that just dwarf you in every sense yeah, of the word. Yeah. You're scrappers, you and Joe Murphy together, dynamic duo. And you're going on a listing pitch with this builder who's got 10,000 high-end condos yeah, to sell yeah, in New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Sophisticated market, educated market. Tell that story of, uh, with the Mad Men and all that. It was an amazing story. Anybody that has grown up in New York has heard of Lafrac Village. Lafrac Village. Yeah. Sam Lafrac at that time was one of the country's most prominent billionaires. And this was before dot-com money and crypto and so forth and so on. He owned 16,000 apartments in New York without a mortgage. The first time I met him, he said, Alan, I could close down New York if I wanted to because I own the air rights over the Lincoln Tunnel. So... <laughs> When when you met when you met a person of that magnitude, it was like a movie. It was like you met the the, the penguin out of Batman or the Riddler. I can shut down this city, right. and so we met with him, and he was building a city in Jersey. He was going to call it Newport. I was in, involved in having them call it Newport at Jersey City. He never before had ever hired a real estate broker to do anything for his organization. But because he was coming to New Jersey, they were stationed in Queens, but they were in Manhattan as well, but more Queens. Mm -hmm. uh, for the first time, they looked. They started interviewing both real estate companies, and they had ad agencies in Manhattan. And back then, they really weren't called them the marketing agencies. It was like the TV show The Mad Men. They're yeah. ad agencies, not marketing. Now, what year is this? Just so I can. This is my... in 1980. So, and how long have you been with Murphy? 78. And how long you been with Murphy at that point? In time? Five or six years. And how many offices did you have? At that time, we had about 20 that we owned. Later, we grew to 32, and we had 28 that we franchised. So, so we you're, you're so offices. early there then. Yeah, White had over 100. Schlott had over 100. And you had five. We had five or so. Okay. And so when I met with Sam with Joe, okay. What's his name? Is Sam what? Sam, Sam LaFrac. And the his billionaire. Son is billionaire. Richard, if you go to Forbes magazine, you'll see Richard LaFrac. He's on the three or four billion or whatever. Um, who's counting, right? And so when I, we met with Sam, um, I, I basically said, let us put together a marketing proposal. And so what I did is this. They were building 10,000 condominiums. They were building a city, Newport, Jersey City. So I got my marketing staff together, and I went back to the presentation with Joe, the greatest charismatic broker ever, as I mentioned, and an incredible genius. But I handled all of this. I created, I put together the marketing campaign. Because Jersey City was right across from Manhattan. There's a train station called the Path. Mm -hmm. You go from Manhattan to New Jersey on the Path. There's a ferry, okay? There's, a, there, there's the Lincoln Tunnel, okay? And so what I did is I came in with easels. Newport at Jersey City, the light at the end of the tunnel. Because that's one way to get there. You drive through a tunnel. Because the ad agency, they were just showing easels like the typical they do. They'd have a woman in a gown and a man in a tuxedo holding a champagne glass with 15 ahs, ah, looking over the skyline. But they weren't marketing. They didn't understand the dynamics, the psychographics. What's going on here? He's trying to get people to leave Manhattan and move to New Jersey and treat New Jersey as like the, the sixth borough or whatever. Right. So one of my campaigns was man, Newport, the light at the end of the tunnel. My next one, because on the path, I had a campaign I developed for the train stations. Newport, your path to a better lifestyle. Then we had the ferry, move over Manhattan, okay? And then I hired a person. He was a Channel 2 anchorman in New York. His name was Del Wade. I hired him, and I created audio cassettes. This is years ago, 
before all the technology. And so keep that in mind. 1980. Okay, I had him do a skip because I explained to the developers when people come to the development, they're not just going to make an instant decision. This is a contemplative scenario. Sure. So we're going to give them this audio, and I've got an anchor man with the wonderful resonant voice with the script that I wrote of the virtues and the merits of living there. The next thing I did from the marketing standpoint, I hired five telemarketers and I identified 15 rental buildings and I created the rent to buy assistance program. How the developer, because because this actually was 87, 86, 87, they were, it was tough times. So we had the telemarketers call into all of the rental buildings saying that your building has been approved for you to move up and buy a condo. The developer will pay a point down. He'll pay up the three months of your lease. So these are marketing solutions versus an advertising campaign. And then I had all of our offices as Newport sales centers offsite. And then, and then forget all the other scripts, the language, the reporting system. So we ended up getting that development. And then we developed almost all of the major developments along the coast. Our only competition was a person who used to be our number one manager, Charlie Opler, who was the president of the National Association of Realtors last year. He started a company. It's now a Sotheby's company. Charlie's a world-class salesperson. He snuck in there and got a few other developments. But basically, all of this new development, high-rises, 10,000, 400 there, 300 there, Reva Point, Shelter Bay, Glen Point, we got every single development. And this was part of our presentation. The, home, the builders would say, hey, Joe Allen, we're also thinking of meeting with Weikert. And either Joe and I would say, you're meeting with Jim? And the developer would say, no, we're, we're meeting with this head of new homes and land. And either Joe and I would say, well, I guess this isn't just important enough for Jim to be involved. Okay? And that was it. Jim Weikert. We, we had that every single time that came up. Are you meeting with any? Yeah, we're meeting with this one. We're meeting with that one. But we dominated because of marketing. That's so incredible because that still is the gold standard today. What every real estate agent, whatever real estate broker, whatever you want to call them, what they really want is to win the business of people who are creating the inventory. If you can represent a builder, that's like what, going back to like Ryan Surhan. He's famous in New York City because he's representing $250 million penthouse condos and selling out whole yeah. buildings. And it's so funny. You were doing that throughout the 80s. So when you land that first one, Newport at Jersey City, yeah. 10,000 yeah. Condos. How long did it take you to sell them? We, we got into a recession in 1987. In fact, uh, Joe and I, we, we acquired ourselves 10 condos there. They all ended up a year later going back to the bank in Deed and Lou because mm. it crashed. So there was, there was nothing. We had a good year or two, and then it all crashed. And then, then we sold the company, and they didn't continue with the new company. Okay, so, okay. so that, that's perfect on the lineage here. But by the way, the other thing we used to say to all the developers, yeah. anybody who's listening to this, or watching this rather, who has hundreds of thousands of agents in your company, this is a great thing to say to any developer. We used to always say this to the developer. We're really looking forward to representing you because we have 1,200 hungry mouths to feed. And the image of that was just, oh my, they love that. It's so... It's so sales-oriented. It's just like Sam LaFrac used to say, Alan, I need you to create a chum line. I want a chum line from Manhattan to Jersey City, okay? They love sales talk. 
No, that's a great line. And we could say that here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, home sale realty, because they got 1,400 agents that I'm yeah, a part of. Yeah. So I could say something along the lines yeah, of, we'll get f- I'm, sur- I'm sure glad to uh, represent this development. We have 1,400 hungry mouths to feed here at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. Exactly. And they love that. They love that. They want to think that people are frothing at the mouth to sell their units. So... So then you go... Yeah. As opposed to, oh, we're going to put it in the New York Times. We're going to put it here. Here's our little brochure. Here's this. That's cute. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So now you end up, you and Joe Murphy end up selling Murphy Realty, Better Homes and Gardens. And you were the president then, co-owner, all that kind of yeah. good stuff. And the other thing I did is this. We came up with the Better Homes and Gardens for All America. So we actually went to, with the developers... And we said that we can, we want to put your building plans through the editorial department of the magazine. And we did that. And so then the builder could promote, they don't do this anymore. The builder could promote, they're building a Better Homes and Gardens award-winning development. So we leveraged that as well. Yeah. Now, when you guys sell that operation, yeah. you and Joe, uh-huh. what was your next position in real estate after being the owner, operator, marketing guy, whatever you called yourself, dominator? What'd you do next? Well, you know what? The next position, um, the, as immodest as this may sound, is that when we announced the sale, it was the, it was the first... Um, the, when we announced it that day that we sold to NIT and Coldwell Banker, no one knew about it. Coldwell Banker bought you guys. NRT, which owns Coldwell Banker. Okay. They're Coldwell Banker. They own the major ones. Sure, sure. So, so we were asked not to tell anybody. We signed on the disclosure agreements. So I didn't even tell my wife. In fact, the night before we announced it, my percentage of the ownership was, was wired into my bank. And Carol and I were coming back, back from dinner. I says, Carol, do me a favor. Can you go check on the balances? So she checked on the balance. She goes, Alan, there's a big mistake. I didn't even tell her. Because that night at dinner, Joe Murphy's wife, Fran, said, Carol, tomorrow's the big day. You all excited? Carol didn't know. Because Joe said to me, Alan, don't tell anybody. And I kept my my word. But because everybody knew about it, Joe is the greatest family man, greatest husband. He has been the greatest positive influence in my career. But Joe was unlike any other. And Joe was a straight shooter. And so when they made the announcement, Joe amazingly made this announcement as he, as he introduced it to the 1,200 agents. Today's the happiest day of my career. I'm finally getting out. Okay, it blew everybody's mind. Right. Now, he goes, this is the best thing for my family. Okay, I've gotten tired of this business. He was so honest, he was, right. he was right. beaten down. Nights, calls, this yeah, and that. brutal. He yeah. used to have Christmas parties at his home, and he used to be upset because the agents would go through the home, and his kids would overhear them going like this. Yeah, we bought that couch. Yeah, that TV, I think I pay for that TV. Right? So he was always in a battle, right? But I felt good, too, because I had about 50, 100 agents come up hugging me, asking me if I was going to be all right. And I felt so bad because I just got a nice check Right. And I had a new position. So the position was executive vice president of Coldwell Bank of New England. And also I was the one of the first to two executive vice presidents of senior vice presidents of NRT. Gino and I became the two for the whole country. When Gino sold his company, that being Gino the Goat, Gino the Blafari, who was just named number one leader in the whole industry by Swanpool. So it's not just my opinion. It's the, it's now yeah. documented. Unanimous. Yeah, but so I became executive vice president of Coldwell Bank in New Jersey, 
senior vice president at the same time. So I had a desk at Coldwell Banker Brokerage and I had a desk at NRT. And then after that, I went to uh, up to Boston and there was a company called The Wolf and Honeyman. They were both in the top 10 biggest brokerages. NRT acquired both of them, put them into one company. I was the EVP there. Settled in. I loved it there. I loved Boston. But then I had the offer to go out to Realtor.com to be the president of oh, Realtor.com. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Slow down here. So that's a lot. Yeah. That was a lot. Yeah. NRT acquires Murphy Better Homes and Gardens, of which you were an owner. They keep you on. They yes. say, look, we're going to make you a, a VP of NRT. EVP. Yeah, executive vice president of NRT. And we want you to stay around with Cobalt Bank of New England because they just probably, they're smart. They're like, this guy knows all the agents. They all love right, him. Right, right. And that's how you met Gino Blafari. Yes. And he was what, another EVP of NRT? Well, I met Gino Blafari before that because I had spoken at Mike Ferry's Superstar Retreat. Now, what years are these? Now, these are like 90s now or what? In the late, in the mid to late 80s, I spoke at Mike Ferry's Retreat. And, and I met Gino then. I had no idea when I met him that he was would become real estate's greatest goat, the only goat right now of all time. He's always humble. He never talked about himself, never mentioned what he did. But interestingly, I said to him, I didn't even know who he was. I said, nice to meet you. I said, boy, that's a great looking shirt. And he always remembered that. And when we talk <laughs> about it, he goes, yeah, I'll never forget. But that has so much to do with showing people respect. And so... Maybe today, because he and Christy are my bosses, maybe I still have a job, okay? No way, no <laughs> because, way. Because that's how I get to know Gino. Now, you're bringing an unbelievable amount of, of value to the brand. I'll tell you firsthand, just as a, a local team leader, I see it all over the country. You're asked all over the country to come and speak. I have to tell the audience, the reason Alan's here, again, is because we're talking in front of um, our 1,400 agents here locally. They said, can Alan Dalton please come back? And because Alan's so nice, well, he goes, Andrew, nice. why don't you come with me? He's pulling me, pulling me through life here on these Andrew, speaking there's gigs. There's never been anyone who gets higher ratings when they speak than you do, and it's not even what you do. That's the amazing thing about it. Well, I got, I got to. It's a give, little frosting on your cake. I, I got to give you uh, some roses here while you can smell them, because you really helped me in that speaking department. Because I don't know what I'm like. I'm just naturally, I'm a gift to gab kind of guy, but you've really helped shape a lot of these things and change my thought Andrew, patterns. Andrew, by the age of 35. For you to have the fourth most successful team out of 50, 60,000 global network agents, you, weren't, you didn't grow up in a real estate business. Nothing was handed to you. It's all because of your intellect, your ingenuity. You're a great family man. You're a devoted husband. You've got three of the most beautiful kids anyone's ever going to want to see. The team loves you. The people, the people on the Rethink Council loved you. Okay, we worked on the book together. Um, you're a great collaborator. And, uh, and even though you're very confident, you're not arrogant. You're confident, but you're not cocky. And that's a great attribute. Guys, see, remember what he said at the beginning of the podcast? He's so, you got that from your mother. You got it from your mother. Well, this is about you. So stop flipping it yeah. on me, Alan. Uh, I'm yeah. still going deep on you. So you meet Gino. You're, now, is he an EVP at NRT as yes. well? So you guys have. Yeah, Gino had been the number one agent in all of um, Santa Clara County, two million people. Then he became the president of. Um, Contempo, where nine of the top 11 offices in the world were his. He was the number one company. Then he started Intero, which became right. one of the top six or seven brokerages in the world from scratch. That's unheard of because all the consolidation going on out there, right. you can't open up an office against all the consolidation. This isn't like 30 years ago. 
Then he sells, he becomes the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. What he's done here, there is legendary, as is what Christy Budnick is doing as our CEO now. They're, they're two peas in the pod yeah. in terms of what they've been able to accomplish. And then he's now, the C, he's the chairman and he's the CEO of Home Service of America. And when you put his whole empire together, he wouldn't call it that, but I will. It's unprecedented in the entire world. You'll be glad to know I have a podcast scheduled with him. Well, that's a, for, that's a good decision for, yeah. <laughs> for that whole story. Yeah. But sticking on uh, on Alan, on your Ask story. Ask him if he knows anything about accountability. No, he loves it. Oh, that's a joke. Anyway. Yeah. I know. Exactly. I don't really like it. But, <laughs> but that's, that's why I'm in. Yeah. That's why he is where he is. Amen. But Amen. I'm still learning. I'm still yeah. learning. Amaro Amparo. I'm still learning. Now, so then you go to Cowell Banker and you do the, how long were you at the NRT Cowell Banker, New England? Well, when we went to Coldwell Banker, when they bought us, and they came into, our, we had a training department at our company because we were Murphy Realty, so I called it MIT, Murphy Institute of Training. Ironically, I hired somebody who actually did graduate from MIT in Cambridge, Mass., and I put him in the newspaper with both diplomas. Okay, I've graduated <laughs> from both MITs. That said, we also had a marketing de department that I named Metro Media. So we had a big marketing department for franchising and all of that. When Coldwell Banker, when we became part of Coldwell Banker, the heads from Coldwell Banker came out, they visited our marketing department and they said, you have 10 times more programs than we have as a brand. They had never seen the likes of it because I had created a marketing solution for every city. I had a move up system, downsize, okay? One of my agents came to me and said, Alan, I sold two properties last week on corner lots. I, I created the corner lot marketing system. In the newspaper, we had the front page. I have up in the corner, Murphy's Corner of the Market. If you're interested, if you have a coveted corner lot property and want it sold, give us a call. I had uh, downsized. I had my real estate financial planning system. We did homes guides in six languages 30 years ago, Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Spanish, English, and so forth and so on. And so we had more marketing, real marketing, not advertising, not little brochures, but real marketing solutions. And so they then asked me if I'd create marketing systems for Realogy. So I created, as I did for Better Homes Again, so I created, I was also their consultant. Now Realogy's NRT. Realogy's NRT. So I was the executive vice president of Coldwell Banker, New Jersey. I was the senior vice president of NRT. And I was also had a separate consulting agreement with Century 21, ERA, and Coldwell Banker. And for those three brands, I created their national marketing systems that were all at their convention in, in terms of that. So I was very, very busy at that time, to say the least, in addition to playing in three nighttime basketball leagues. All right, so now we're, we're approaching the Atlantic article, which we got to get to, but I don't think we're there yet. And what's fascinating, just saying time out here on the timeline, is what I've seen firsthand, I've known you for about two years now, and you're still creating them. <laughs> The guy came, comes up with new forward-thinking marketing ideas today that I saw that well, it'll be on one of the slides tomorrow with um, the month. We don't have to dive yeah, into it because yeah, I want yeah. it to be a big splash yeah. for the network. But you're still coming up with stuff today. It's just, I guess it's how your brain works. You're a marketing savant through and through. Uh, above anything else, you're a great salesperson. There's a lot of great salespeople. But very few can market because you're a consumerist. You understand how people want to see things and how they're attracted to buy things. Like when you're going over, you know, I watched your 1987 home marketing system tape, I guess it was, that we converted to a DVD. Now it's on YouTube. 
He said, the American consumer has demonstrated that they'd like to buy products and services from brands they trust in a systemized fashion. And he goes on a rant for like 90 minutes and you're like, I can't believe no one's thought of this before. All right, so you're doing all that. And then I guess that leads into, how long were you there? Where? Uh, Realogy, NRT, you have those three um, gigs. About uh, three years. And now how old are you? You're 50, 50. About 50, yeah. So you're about 50. And this is, and your next, your next seat was Realtor.com. Yes. Now, I remember you told me this story, something along the lines, I'll let you tell it, but when you came up with the marketing system explaining that real estate agents had to get into the real estate and lifestyle planning, kind of like financial planners plan, that was your original thought saying, wow, we need to get more in depth, which makes total sense, by the way. That was one of the tipping points where at Realtor.com they said, that's the best idea I've ever heard. Let's just make them the CEO. Yeah, what happened with that? And first of all, in terms of, geez, why, why didn't I think of that? You have to understand the sociology of real estate. Because we're in an instant gratification, transaction to transaction driven industry, yeah. that doesn't lend itself to strategic thinking. In fact, if you were to call most brands and brokerages over the last 30 years and say, could you please put me through to your research and development department? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. Yet the rest of the world, that's commonplace. So all we, we'll rely on NAR to do some research from you know, Lawrence Yuna or whatever, but it's, it, it doesn't have real divisions in our, in our industry. And so because of that, we don't think we're not consumer-centric. I mean, our industry actually resisted the internet, Andrew. I know. Okay? I know. Our industry actually resisted IDX. So things that the consumer intuitively embraces, we wrestle with. And because of that, I've just been able to do things that would be very commonplace in any other industry. But in our industry, they seem to be remarkably innovative. For example, 30 years ago, I said, why would we ever be using words like listing presentation? Because no homeowner wants a listing presentation. They all want a marketing presentation or a marketing proposal. And this isn't just semantics. I started challenging 30 years ago. Why would we call the person who represents the listing agent Listing agents do a lot more than just list. They should be called the marketing agent. Now, to some people, that's just semantics, but it has profound consequences because language is the clothing of ideas. Even today, I see people still talk about databases. We're, I'm on a mission to get people to convert, and our brand to convert their database to a client base. And so in terms of the real estate financial planning guide, I asked myself this question. In 1987, I had created for the brand the home marketing system, the home merchandising system, the home marketing upgrade system, which we can talk about. I'm coming on now for the, for the expires. And yet in 1987, the market turned down so precipitously, it was almost at the 2008 level. In some cases, it was, uh, it was more um, onerous. And so since all the other systems had nothing to do with getting people to buy and sell, I came up, I asked myself this question, what percentage of people in America at some time in their life, regret not owning enough real estate. Everybody. Or in the world. What percentage have ever developed a real estate plan for life? Basically zero. So that's a need. So what percentage of homeowners have ever had an agent say, I want to encourage you and help you to develop a real estate plan for your life? Basically, nobody was thinking like that. Still no one does it. No one, no, exactly. Because, but it's not a criticism because we're a, a transactional transaction-driven industry. In, instead, you just see ads that people would actually say this. When you're ready to buy or sell a home, buy or sell, give me a call. But in other words, but you better get ready on your own. 
And so I created the real estate financial um, planning system. And then when I went to Realtor.com, and I want to talk a little bit how I ended up there. I went to Realtor.com, and on our board, we had the person by the name of John Doerr. So you just ended up on the board? Through no, the no, channels? I wasn't on the board. I was an officer of the company. I went there as the president. Then I became CEO of Realtor.com. Then the board asked me to be president of the real estate division. I oversaw a, a, CRM, a CRM product called Top Producer. Oh, yeah, yeah. I oversaw Welcome Wagon. I oversaw Home Builder Home. That, how'd you first get in there? This is how I get in there. I got, I got a call one day. And, um, and I had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Joe Hanauer. He's very prominent in the industry. He was just, used to be the CEO of, of Coldwell Banker and then Grubb and Ellis. And um, he asked to meet me when I was in Boston. We met at the Four Seasons, had a long interview with him. And um, he said, Alan, if you had one idea for Realtor.com, what, what would it be? I said, well, I think we should advertise Realtor.com where property and personal promotion meet. Because the agents are more concerned with personal promotion at that time than property promotion. So that would be an integrated synthesis and it would show the balance, okay, of both worlds coming together. He liked that so much that I think it was a tipping point. He said, you know what, now I want you to introduce, but he had seen what I had done with all the national marketing systems. Right. So he, I want you to meet with Mike Long. Now, Mike Long was the CEO of Homestore. Mike Long founded a website called WebMD. You've heard of it. Everyone's heard of WebMD. Of course. Yeah. Mike founded that. So I, he called me. I like to fly. He had his own plane. I'm going to fly into Boston. The day that I met him, Andrew, because you're making this a personal story, not a professional one. The day that I met him, it was a torrential rainstorm. And I had to go from where I had a, a condominium at Harbor Towers. I had to get over to the Union Oyster House. And, and there was no taxis. And it was a four o'clock appointment. And our offices were right downtown. So I ran. When I got into the Union Oyster House, my suit, I was completely drenched. It was just as though I had just come out of the ocean, out of the Boston Harbor. We had a meeting. We had a wonderful meeting. I asked him a lot of questions about himself, his career, and so forth and so on. Didn't want to make it about me. Didn't want to seem anxious because I really wasn't. I loved what I was doing. I loved Boston. And, um, and so he called me the next day and he said, Alan, I'd love you to be, I'd love you to be the, uh, the president. Um, and may I tell you why? I said, sure, Mike. He said, because Realtor.com is being rained on. We had 11 people go to federal prison. They had all these problems before I got there. Realtor.com is being rained on. And in the two hours we met, you didn't even acknowledge that you were wet. <laughs> You acted there as though that's how you dressed every day. You didn't even mention it. And that's what I want to, to lead Realtor.com. I don't want somebody looking in the rearview mirror. I want somebody we're being rained on. And then I said this, Mike. I says, Mike, as you know, two months ago, my daughter was paralyzed in an accident. She's quadriplegic. Are you concerned that I'm not going to be able to concentrate because my family's everything to me? And he said something, which is why he's so successful. Here's what he said, Alan, forgive me for saying this, but in a perverse way, that makes you all the more appealing to me because I know that you're going to be on a mission. See, you could take the whole world and give them a month to come up with something. That's why he's a billionaire, okay? He comes up with that in, in 30 seconds. I'll never forget it. Alan, forgive me for saying this, but in a perverse way, that makes you all the more appealing to me 
because I know that you're going to be on a mission. And now you're, how, many, how old are you here? At that time, I'm um, 52, 53. And how many kids did you have? Uh, three, three right, daughters. Right. Yeah, three, three daughters. daughters. Okay. Okay. So that, so that happens. And then you accept that role as president of yeah, Realtor.com. President. president. Now, now, fast forward to the point where, you know, the board's meeting and they need to pick a new CEO. Well, what I had done when I when I when I got there, they were losing tens of millions of dollars, and I was able to a with, month. With, no, they were losing seventy a year. Right. And with the help of the team and with Mike Long's brilliance of working out all all of the investment entanglements and, and, and lawsuits, we were able to turn it around. A few years later, uh, News Corp purchased for for, for a billion dollars. When I got there, the stock was ten cents. It was delisted, so we were able to get the stock up. And then at a board meeting, we had on the board John Doerr, who funded Google. Mm -hmm. We had Roger McNamee, who's got a New York Times bestseller, Zucked. He's Mark Zuckerberg's mentor. He, along with Bono of U2 fame, they invested $100 million into Realtor.com. We had, this is all public record, so this is nothing out of school in the, in the, in the least. And, uh, and then we had the dean of the UCLA Business School. We had the founder of Nickelodeon. All as board members. All as board members. So we had a very august board. Uh, so I used to come in four times a year at the board meetings. They'd have two-day board meetings. And I'd give an overview. As the president. As the as a C, then they made me CEO. And then one of the board meetings, we had a possibility thinking. We had an offsite with the dean of the Stanford Business School. How do we get our stock up to so much? I won't mention the, the, the number. And so I introduced the real estate financial planning system. At that meeting, John Doerr, the, on the board, he wasn't the chairman. Joe Hanauer was the chairman. John Doerr got up and said, Alan, that's the best idea that's ever come out of your industry. That's like how life insurance agents had to go to become financial planners. Right. That next day, I resigned my position, stayed with the company for one year against a lot of resistance initially, because they, but then they announced it on a, what they called a new co, a new company. I hired my whole team, which had gone on to do big things themselves, and we spent a year working on a, a whole different approach to real estate based on financial planning. Uh, but then it didn't go through because the National Association of Realtors, which had two seats on the board, they were understandably uncomfortable about the idea that if the realtors are, are being confused with financial planners, Right. Even though there wouldn't, even though that we made all those distinctions, so my whole team had to resign after a year. I hired somebody called Errol Samuelson. He's now with Zillow to replace me. A great guy, a great job in terms of that. And then I went on to create something called Town Advisor, but that's another story. All right. So I want to know the day you got promoted to CEO. Yeah. What was that about? They just said, hey, you're doing such a good job, just run everything now. You're the president, but let's just make you the real boss's boss. Well, they had actually come to me and said, we want to groom you to someday be the CEO of the company, Homestore. Uh, in fact, I changed the name of the company from Homestore to Move. Move Inc., yeah. To Move Inc. And um, that was an asset they had. That so Realtor.com was just an asset of Homestore? Realtor.com was a division of Homestore. Right. And then I, and then I get to, uh, and also one of the highlights was... Uh, how I get to, to meet with Bono. Yeah, it was, I, I've seen the picture of you and Bono hanging out somewhere, somewhere in like SoCal. What was that about? Well, when I first met Bono, um, he, had high, he had rented out the San Francisco Zoo to have a special surprise birthday party for Roger McNamee. 
And Mike Long said, Alan, want to fly up to the party with me? And we flew up in Mike's plane. They had rented out. There was only about 100 people there, all the chieftains of Silicon Valley, which I didn't really belong there because I was on Mike's coattails. It's good to have friends in high places, no pun, because Mike had a plane. But um, So we get there, and um, I had met Roger principally because Roger and Bono created this, this investment company, which they still have called Elevation Partners, um, after Bono's Elevation Tour. They also invested, I think, 47% into Forbes magazine. And so this is the first time I met Bono, and Mike Long said, uh, Alan, like you to meet Bono. And the first thing Bono said to me was this. He goes, oh, my God, I'm meeting Alan Dalton? You're Alan Dalton? Oh, my God, I can't believe I'm meeting you. I'm finally meeting Alan Dalton, just like that. So I'm saying, man, this must be his gig. This must be his stick. Like right. he's some Gandhi type of guy. Is this what he does? Right. But I found out about an hour later, and you can Google this. He used to sing under the name of Alton Dalton. And so they had just invested $100 million. So it's not that I was completely insignificant, even though in his world I would be. And the fact that he sang as Alton Dalton, and my name is Alan Dalton, he went on and on and on. So I get a big kick out of that. Okay. Well, the, he, well, he also, you were probably very important to him in at least Elevation Partners because yeah. Bono's writing a check for $100 million into Realtor.com because yeah. they like the idea. And you're, if you, didn't do a good, if you didn't do a good job, that he could lose $100 million. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but it was, it, was the, it was the connection, though, yeah, Alton, of Dalton. Alton Dalton. That might have been the reason he wrote the check. He's like, I'm feeling good about this guy. You know, Andrew, I never thought of that. You know, I don't think I give myself enough credit. You know, maybe him and Roger might be like, let's let's go ten million here in Realtor.com. Who's the CEO? Alan Dalton. Put it all in there. No, I'm feeling you should be a detective. That's that's great forensic work. That's exactly right. I'm in a bit of a sleuth. Probably. Oh my God, I never thought of that. So, so CEO of Realtor.com is such an epic title um, that to hold. You had it for six years. You you take the advice kind of, of of John Doerr in a board meeting. John Doerr is one of the guys, what, what was his big claim to fame, Google? Yeah, he funded Google. He, he's considered the number one venture capitalist. Yeah, big venture. He's guy. got a number one New York Times bestseller. Gino's read it. Uh, and, um, so is he still a friend, John Doerr? Yeah, absolutely. No, he's not a close friend, but you know, he sends me cards. And I mean, these are people, it's not, 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 they're not like desperate for friendship. <laughs> yeah, I know. So he, and neither am I. Right. No, I get it. I right. get it. That's why I'm so proud to be your friend. Um, so John Doerr's like, that's the best idea that ever come out of your industry. So you're, you smartly say, wow, this guy's not a dummy. All he does is invest in uh, companies. Well, they're all flying into the board meeting in, in Laird, not Learjets, but Gulfstreams. Right. Uh, most of them are billionaires, literally. Because they make good decisions. You know, and you know, I'm making you know, a couple hundred grand a year or whatever. And they're making. You did fine. And so, and so I'm fine. thinking maybe this is my, maybe my ship's going to come in here. So you you go in to start that company, they shut it down because NAR board seats. That's that's fascinating. We're not going to get. Yeah. I don't want to get you in yeah, trouble yeah. and go no, into no, all no, that. No, no. So, but the real estate. By the way, plan. I'll tell you who was amazingly important to Realtor.com is Bob Goldberg. We've never had a better chief executive officer of the National Association of Realtors. Than Bob Goldberg. He's today. He's yeah, the, the, He's a treasure. He had. He was on our board. He, they had two board seats, but he he was behind. They're becoming a realtor.com. People don't realize that he's a, an unbelievably helpful person to the industry executive. 
Well, shout out to Bob Goldberg because he's a Maryland guy. He lives yeah. in Western Howard yeah. County. I'm going to yeah. be reaching out to him yeah. to see if I can get him here physically yeah. here, like you're physically yeah. here today. Because yeah. yeah. um, he's kind of an icon. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you're, when you're yeah. running the entire National Association yeah. of Realtors, it's a deal. Are you going to run for that that seat? <laughs> <laughs> no, they need you too much. Yeah. Anyway. See, what's funny is they're begging out. And no one wants this guy to retire because he's got all these marketing ideas that keep coming out. So I think you're going to be with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services for a long time. Now tell us how that transition went. So we talked a little bit about Town Advisor, this other company. How'd you get back into? Didn't you have a stint at Riz Media? And yeah, any- I did. I did. I, I I came up with this idea called um, the Top Five in Real Estate Network. Top Five. And I brought that to John at Riz Media, but it didn't scale. It didn't make it. So then Charlie Opler had me become president of his Sotheby's company. Oh, then you went to Sotheby's. Yeah, then I became president of that company. It was more in name only because Charlie just does a phenomenal job running that whole operation now with his partner, Randy. They've been partners for years, and his son is like a, a gift to the company, Michael Opler. And, and then, then I got involved with another former broker within our franchise, Larry Vecchio. He created something called Homes in Your Town. So Larry asked me to be president there, and from there I came up with the idea of Town Advisor. Right. Because I said, where do people go for hotel information? They go to TripAdvisor. Where do they go for information on home improvement? Home Advisor. Where do they go if they're trying to decide if they live, should live in Bel Air or Towson? There's no comparable website. So I led that, but it was underfunded. And then, and then I did some consulting, and then Gino, Okay, uh, brought me into Home Services of America and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services and HSF uh, because of uh, Gino, what Gino had saw me do at my own company, at Realtor.com, and at NRT. So you've worked, you know, with RealG, NRT, Sotheby's, and Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. I guess the only two you're missing. I guess you should do a little stint at Remax and Keller Williams and call it a day because then you've worked for every single well, major I, brand. I got to know these those great companies as well because at Realtor.com we oh, worked with all of them and oh, yeah. at all their conventions. And um, but I've always been I've always been attracted to what I call classic B to C brands, business to consumer. Right. Better Homes and Gardens is a consumer-centric brand. Right. Sotheby's is a consumer-centric brand. And to me, my favorite of all time, not just because I'm here now, is Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, because Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, as described by our great CEO, Christy Budnick, is an aspirational brand. It's a brand that doesn't just define the property, it also defines the professional as a forever agent. And so I've never been more comfortable within a brand, and especially now with our forever agent movement. Well, I guess, you know, that's where we're at today. So you went through the uh, the lineage of your career from playing in Lithuanian basketball leagues to getting into insurance and an incredible run uh, in this. Uh, real estate's been good to you and you've been good to real estate. That's, that's for darn sure. Now I want to talk about the forever agent a little bit though, because yeah. that's kind of like, you know, arguably could be one of your biggest things yet, because this is, this is new for, for those outside of, our brand at Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Warren Buffett's been saying forever that this is, I buy and hold forever. We're a forever company. That's Berkshire Hathaway itself, the conglomerate. Now, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, um, Christy and you, um, the research and development department have said, you know, this could be our big movement, the forever agent movement. 
And I'm not sure, I don't know, because I've been away from Remax for two years. I'm not sure if anyone has a movement, any of these other big brands. Maybe they do. I wouldn't know what they are if they were. But you are kind of spearheading, and now you're in charge of the whole Forever Agent movement. That's been announced. I saw mm-hmm. the press release. That's mm-hmm. all. That's They're like, just get put it all on Alan Dalton and then let him just work on it. So why don't you tell kind of everyone what you're doing now, what we can expect. I know there's some hints that you're going to be gathering some ambassadors and really adding steam to this tidal wave that, that kind of rocked the industry and or at least what rocked our brand. And I'm happy to play a microscopic part in it and only because you asked me to. But give us a, you know, as we're wrapping up kind of where Alan is now and what your, what your big push is. Tell us about that forever. How did you come up with it and all that good stuff? Well, the words forever, forever company come from none other than the Oracle of Omaha himself. Vince Lacey. Mr. Yeah, Vince Lacey, <laughs> who's also instrumental in everything we do, as is Jimmy Burgess. Yeah. But Vince, but Warren Buffett came up with the concept of a forever brand. You right. want to be with a brand that's going to be here forever because he's the, he's the Pied Piper of buy and hold in the history of the, of the country, if not the world. And so then Gino seized upon uh, Warren Buffett's wisdom and came out on the front cover of Riz Media announcing that he's made Berkshire Hathaway Home Services the forever brand. That's where it started. When Christy came on um, as our CEO, she said, even more important than the brand to the public is our agents. I want the focus to be on our agents as forever agents. And so because I'm in research and development, Christy asked me, I want you to do a lot of research on what it takes to create movements and mass assimilation. So I did a lot of research. And within movements, it was interesting to me, one of the components is that when people take an oath or a pledge, my my nephew, for example, um, Dalton McAfee, he was the captain of West Point Hockey. He's now an Army Ranger. And they take an oath, okay? Boy Scouts take an oath, Girl Scouts take an oath. There's the Hippocratic Oath. Even though it's taken on many different iterations, it goes back to ancient Greece, Greece rather. Right. Supreme Court Justice. Something like 300 companies I researched give an oath and a pledge. And then it dawned on me, other than the Code of Ethics Oath, no real estate brand or brokerage has ever asked the people to make a public, to exteriorize a public commitment to something bigger than themselves. And as you know, the Berkshire Hathaway Home Services brand has been memorialized as, as having four foundational values, trust, integrity, stability, and longevity. So we, everything was in place. We have Warren Buffett's wisdom, Gino bringing it, Christie personalizing it to the agents. All of the ingredients were there to basically consolidate a movement around the greatest unmet need in the marketplace. That is to help real estate agents go from being perceived as largely transactional to relational. So as I started researching this, Andrew, and you've been a big part of this, as I started researching this, something started jumping out at me. I've heard my whole career this term. I've got to do a better job of keeping in touch with my past clients. Well, if somebody's your past client, Andrew, 
that makes you a past agent. So I've always liked the plaque, watch your thoughts because your thoughts lead to your words, actions, behavior, character, and your destiny. So if you're informing your brain that these people that once had a transaction with you are now deemed or characterized as being past clients, you're going to treat them as past clients. Whereas if you can see them as forever clients, because you're a forever agent, there's going to be a paradigmatic shift. But now that, para that paradigm, paradigm shift must be accompanied by substance. So then I ask myself, is this, is the forever agent movement, is it going to be merely a mantra, like a slogan? Is it going to be just a marketing plan? Or is it going to also be a manifesto or going to have meaning? So what we had to do is we brought in all of the content and concepts. You are very helpful with the 34 proclamations because it has to have, it has to be particularized. So here are some of the particulars of the Forever Agent movement because if people don't buy in and assimilate and coalesce around these virtues, then all you've got is a slogan, okay? It's like a convention theme. Yeah, I have to just say. Now, Alan, you, they might have created this little fire. They said, hey, look, we want to yeah. do something with this Forever Agent thing. But as the head of research and development, and now the guy who's kind of solely in charge of the whole movement, they're like, Alan, put your gas on this because they know you're the guy. Well, they that's kind of, you say, well, well, no, that's it's just the truth. No, well, Christy has appointed me as a director. Well, because she's brilliant. Yeah, she is brilliant. She, yeah, she knows. She's like, yeah. no, Alan. No, she's not brilliant because she put me there. She's just brilliant. But well, you don't become the CEO by no, not being smart. No, that's exactly right. But, but here's the whole thing. So here are some of the particulars. Number one, we have to help our network <clears throat> convert their database to a client base. Every single training program and coach is still talking about databases. I could have the largest database here in Baltimore next month. I could buy the voter registration rolls for the Republican and Democratic Party, and I could walk through the Baltimore Convention Center as proud as a peacock. But in a year, I might be a feather duster because a database has virtually no value. We have to help people. We have to help people, for example, stop listening to the coaches who are all telling them, you've got to treat your business like a business as if it's an oracle itself and start treating your business like a professional practice. A business has customers. A practice has clients. Someday you can sell a practice. They're never going to be able to sell their book of business because it's in a database. It's not a client base. Then we have all of the content. Then we have, for example, the planning guy. I'm talking to Christy right now. This isn't official, but we're working on it. We might be coming out with April, for example, is National Real Estate and Lifestyle Planning Month because we have a lifestyle planning guide that I've written and Wendy Duran, our guru in marketing, has, has published and created for us because what percentage of people regret not owning a real estate? They all have. Realtors have never encouraged the consumer to develop real estate plans. Guys, do you think he's still passionate about his career or do you think he should hang it up? What do you guys think? This guy's just getting started over here. I can see your, your yeah. engines revving. Now, I want this to be more about you, okay? I know what you're working on yeah. now. Oh, trust yeah. me, we all yeah. do. And it's yeah. freaking awesome. Now, just a couple other uh, personal things. Does anything jump? We kind of went, bounced around your, your yeah. career here. What was one of the biggest wins you ever had? Like when you look back and you think, oh man, well, when Joe Murphy hired me or, or at Realtor.com, I did this. Does anything just jump out at you if someone said, hey, what were some of your best days when you went to bed that night? You say that was a win. That would have been a big 
hit. Does anything come to mind? Because you've had the so best, many. The best days of my life, other than when my three daughters were born, and I went through the Lamas on all three births, is the fact that my little girls became, became happy with what they achieved and what they've achieved so far. My two oldest daughters were both all-American soccer players and went to Princeton and UPenn. And growing up as a city kid, that's why with, with 10 of us in a, a six-family home, and in fact, for years, I'd say to home sellers on luxury listing calls, folks, just so you know, I'm very happy and excited and comfortable in a home of this size and aesthetic grandeur because I grew up in a similar-sized home. Now, there were six other families living with us, okay? <laughs> hey, wait a minute. Didn't you say that to President Richard Nixon? I said that to Nixon. The president, he laughed, too. <laughs> nah, okay. Yeah. We're going to come back and, to that. And he didn't say, and I'm recording this. But anyway. <laughs> uh, but, but the thing is that but when, when that happened, okay, when I received the, the news that, like, Ginny got into Princeton and Becky got into UPenn and Laura got into Boston University and was a nationally gifted writer, and then when my granddaughter this year became all Ivy in soccer, and my nephew became captain of West Point hockey, and my niece was All-American three years ago at Notre Dame University in lacrosse, okay? And my grandson, Max, just got a scholarship to Quinnipiac for lacrosse. Uh, those are the things that I am the happiest for, and, and I don't want to say proud because pride go up before the fall. I'm happy for them because they have a sense of accomplishment, and that has a lot to do with their self-images. And I know that I've had, in varying degrees, a little bit to do with that, okay, in terms of creating an environment where we're determined. We, we, we want to compete. We want to contribute to teams. And so those have been and will always be. And then the fact that this last June was our 50th wedding anniversary. I donated my kidney to my wife uh, five years ago. And so it's always the, the family times, and it's always about the, the kids and the grandkids. Oh, that's a good answer. Now, you know, when you look back, are there any kind of key moments where you ever think, man, if I just would have done this, I would have been a lot further along? Or like, you know, I find myself in my short career saying, man, you know, if I, in that key moment, if I just would have went along with it, I would have been I, could, I probably could have been here now. Do you ever play that game to yourself? Never, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I've never woken up a day in my life thinking about how I want to make money. Every day of my life, I've thought, what do I want to accomplish? Money follows value, but I didn't do it because I was aware of that, that truism, okay? I've always been involved in passionate movements and causes, and, um, and that's it. And, I, and I'm very consistent and I'm relentless when I get into it. Like, for example, I've never had a drink in my life. Why? Because when I was eight years of age, my mother said, Alan, promise me you're not going to drink when you grow up. And I promised her, and so that was easy. So it's not even a tough thing to do. I gave my word, and I've never drank. I've never had a cigarette, okay? So I get into my routines and rituals and things I should be doing versus what I want to be. I've never given thought to what I want to be. It's always what I want to be doing. Yeah, and that's why you're always part of a team. We did notice that, and that's and why absolutely. You know that 34 Proclamations book that um, I think it's just a great. There's so many yeah. great thoughts in in deep philosophical arguments in there. Oh yeah. And I said, you you were like Andrew, you're going to do this with me. You kind of pull me into that, and I said, Alan, this is 
it's kind of like your stuff. I don't, I don't want to be like, well, you add a lot to I mean, it. I had a little bit here and there, but you're like, no, everything I do is part of a team. I'm teaming up with you on this. But and see, that's just who you are. And the other thing is this, okay? Um, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services is a very innovative, forward-looking brand, and especially with Christy now at the, the helm. As a 73-year-old man, it's very important that this movement also has hundreds of people, and, and it's taken a village. Everybody on our marketing education team, Wendy Duran, Bob Watson, Michael Fortes, all of the brokers, George Patio is the reason we have the stickers and the workbooks and uh, Candace Adams and Ray Maces. And you go right down the line, okay? This has been a, the old cliche, it takes a village. This has, had, this has been an amazing, and it is an amazing village. I give myself credit because I, I, can, I have a vision of how all things come together for the largest purpose. So therefore, everything has to capitulate to the essence. And that is having forever clients. So you can't have forever clients with just a database. You can't have forever clients if you're just serving communities and not representing communities. So these distinctions aren't distinctions without a difference, so they're not semantical. They're profoundly important, indispensable components. So I want to make sure that the movement is shepherded in a way that is true, okay, to the vision. And, and I'm glad that, that Christy has basically deputized me, although everything, I, I take all the leadership from Christy and, and all the guidance, and, uh, but, but then there's hundreds, there's going to be thousands. We're going to have 55,000 people that will be forever agents. You know what, you know what you're also great at? It's you, you've been a leader of many companies, yep. been the owner, broker owner, president here, CEO here, high leadership roles. So you know how to lead. And you're leading this movement. Yeah. And, and I know we're, you're working on that even today. And, but you're also able to be led, which is a, a key distinction. A lot of times once people reach, once you're calling the shots, you don't like other people ever calling the shots, but somehow you're kind of able to morph and say, no, I'm a team player. And I think it all comes back to the team thing because the, you know, the sum of the, the, the whole is greater than the sum, the, the individual parts. And you've always seen that. You know what I think you'd be great at, Alan? I'm calling it now because you don't seem to care who takes credit. You're all about truth and the vision spreading. You're all about a proper movement. Can we just get you in politics or what? Because <laughs> all these guys seem to be the opposite. Self-serving. You don't want to get me going on politics because We're I, not gonna t- I'm just saying right. to get into politics. We don't need yeah. to go over the views, but I just feel like that's the type of characteristic that I'd say, I cast a vote for that guy. Why? Because he's not an egotistical, egotistical maniac. He's probably just going to do the right thing because he doesn't care about the money. He, does, he wants what's true and what's going to be helpful to the most people. Wouldn't that be nice? But anyway, I digress. Well, I would say this, since you spent, uh, talked about politics, it's very appropriate that we have a symmetrical treatment of this podcast. We began with Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. and to end with Martin Luther King, yeah. if I ever was in politics, my number one objective would be to have everybody working together, everybody treated equally, Everybody included, yet merit being honored, and you'd have to have a uh, balance. But it's just we we should be very grateful that we're in an industry that's not divided. There's no other profession where people work more harmoniously on behalf of clients than the real estate industry, than brokers. We go to national conventions, 
We go to conventions like Riz Media and Inman and Swanpool. All the t- every day you're dealing with agents and other companies. There's so right. much mutual respect. It's too bad that the rest of the country can't take a page politically out of how well the real estate industry functions. God, God bless. And um, Alan, I got to make this public statement that you've, in our communications, and we work on some cool projects. Yeah. We wrote a book. Now we're, I'm kind of helping with the movement. You were going to be speaking in Gettysburg right. and Lancaster right. and Towson this week, and we get to spend some time. One of my favorite things to do with you is just to kind of talk about life. We talk about sports, mm-hmm. just normal stuff. But you provide such good perspective on certain things. And I just want to bring it up because it is Martin Luther King mm-hmm. Jr. Day. And this was like a month ago. You said, Andrew, I want you to watch this video. And it's Elvis performing. And I said, okay, here we go. But it turns out to be one of the most incredible homages to, I believe Martin Luther King was the inspiration yeah, yeah, for it. Yeah. And it's Elvis. What was the song called? If I Can Dream. If I Can Dream. So Google this. Elvis Presley, If I Can Dream. Alan and I get on a Zoom and he goes, before we start, I need you to watch something. And it's just ironically, it's Martin Luther King yeah, Jr. Yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I watch it and I almost started crying. That's how good this was. Oh, yeah. And I just really, and that's one of a hundred examples I could give of, Alan, you just kind of plant a seed because it's humanity. It makes you better at everything. If you can understand certain things like this and honor greatness in any capacity, Elvis honoring Martin Luther King, or what he just eloquently spoke about politics and cooperation amongst different parties. When it comes down to it, it makes you a better human being. It makes you able to lead, able to get the things done that you want to do. Because it's always going to take people, and you got to know how to do it. Without a doubt. And it's another way of we, you and I, acknowledging how, how grateful we have to be to have had certain opportunities, um, mentors, and just, again, opportunities. Not everybody has them. Yeah. Well, Alan, it's been awesome for for you to share some a little bit some you know more about your personal story. We had eight topics we could have covered today and some really cool tactics on how to excel in your in your real estate career and uh, just incredible lines that we will put out later on how to answer how's the market or what's going right, to go on right, with Alan's right. um, real estate upgrade program for expired. And we're going to get to that, but I told Alan I said I just want to go deep on yeah. you a little bit. So I appreciate you coming on and we're probably going to have to do part two and part three because we didn't even get to tell the Richard Nixon story or the time you met <laughs> Trump or all the, the yeah. this guy's got stories on stories. But it's always an honor and a privilege. And thanks for, for opening up a little bit on, on the lineage because people don't realize that you've been there, you've done that. And as I always tell our rethinkers and, and some of the young agents in our brand, if there was social media throughout the 80s, because I've unearthed some of the um, early speaking sessions you gave and mesmerized crowds, you would have been freaking everywhere. Full suit, dark hair. Can you imagine this guy's got energy at 73? You put him in there at 35 in his prime, you're going to be like, who is this guy? Andrew, I want to end by saying this. Not only are you a star, you're a bigger star in the making. What you've accomplished by the age of 35 is a tribute to your parents, to yourself, to your family, to your company, to Rod, your, your great CEO that you work uh, for. And it's going to be interesting for the rest of the industry to follow your career over the coming decades because you're destined 
for incomparable greatness. So thank you for having me today. Alan, oh, thank you so much. Until next time. Okay. Hope you enjoyed it. Later. <laughs>